says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of, of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he went, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the, the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that, that creeps on the earth, they that, may swarm, uh, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird. Everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You can have a seat. We left off last week in the flood story. At the flood story's high water mark, or you could say the high water mark of God's wrath. Seeing the wickedness and violence of mankind, God decides to judge the world through a flood. But there's one man on whom God finds favor, Noah. And God instructs Noah to build an ark. And then shuts him and his family and some of all the animals into it. And the flood that destroys the wicked delivers Noah and his family. But we end at chapter 7, kind of in the middle of the story, with Noah and his family in the ark, floating on the tops of the waters. And if it ended there, 
you'd wonder to yourself, okay, Noah's been saved from the flood, but now what? I'm afraid many Christians and non-Christians is at best understand salvation in Christ kind of similarly. We've sinned and there's judgment coming. So we need to be saved from God's wrath, but the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? We get a ticket to heaven, and now we're just kind of waiting out the storms of this life until we get there. Just rolling with uh, the waves, if you will. The world watches and wonders why this Jesus stuff has so little impact on the lives of so many Christians and so little impact on our world. Well, we do need salvation from wrath, from God's wrath, because of our sin. That's true, but that's only part of the story. That's only part of the flood story, and that's only part of our story. There's a second part that we're going to look at today. And what we're going to find in that second part is that God promises to restore his creation. Here's what you need to understand about last week's passage and this week's passage. They really actually go together. It's all one unit, one big story. Okay, I want to kind of uh, show you this real quick. Think of the whole thing as sort of a symmetrical valley, if you will. Everything we read last week is kind of going downhill into this last moment where Noah is in the ark and the waters are completely covering the earth. It says prevailing over the earth. And then everything we are reading this week is kind of the other side of this valley. Last week we started with God's decision to destroy the world, right? And this week we'll end with God's decision to not destroy humanity anymore. Last week we see that Noah builds an ark. This week we see that Noah builds an altar. Last week we see that God commands the remnant to enter the ark. This week we see that God commands the remnant to leave the ark. Last week we see that the flood starts. This week we see that the earth begins to dry or or dries out. Last week the flood prevails for 150 days. This week the flood recedes for 150 days. And there's a, a bunch of other points in there that we could Draw out the repetition of seven days and waiting seven days on both sides. All these different things. It's, it's this symmetrical pattern in the narrative of the story that's leading to this one point at the very, very bottom that we read in chapter 8, verse 1, the very first phrase. What does it say? But God remembered Noah. See, the, the whole point, the biggest truth in the entire story of the flood, is this one simple thing. God remembered Noah. Now, it's not like, it's not like when you and I are going to the sink and we've got a pitcher to fill up and you put it in there and you turn the water on and you get distracted by your kids and suddenly you realize, oh my goodness, I forgot the water was running. I need to go turn it off. That's not what God is doing here. God's not going... Oh man, I forgot I put, I shut Noah and his family in the ark. 
here I am just enjoying the waves, you know, and they're, oh my goodness, I better go get them out. No, it's not what it's meaning here. When the Bible talks about God remembering, when he uses the word for remember uh, in, with God as the one who's doing it, it's telling us that God is about to act based on the promises that he has made. Everywhere where you see God remembering, where it says God and God remembers and God remembers. Throughout scripture, throughout the book of Genesis, I want you to understand that what it's saying is God is about to act based on his promises. One commentator puts it like this. God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object. The essence of God's remembering lies in his act, his acting towards someone because of a previous commitment that he has made. This is the central point of the entire flood narrative. All would be lost. All would be lost. Except that God acts. His action is based on the promises that he's made. According to the purposes that he has. This is the primary point of all of Genesis. Genesis. And it sets the stage for the rest of the Bible's story. And we said it like this when we talked about all the book of Genesis and what it's about. We said the primary point to the entire book is simply that God keeps his promises. Always. When we look at this particular passage, what we find is that God promises to restore his creation. He promises that. And so as we dive into the text, we see that it's broken up into maybe two primary sections. The first section is much longer. It's verses 1 through 19. And then we have those last few verses in the second part. And when we look at verses 1 through 19, what we see is God's recreation is a restoration. God's recreation is a restoration. God causes the winds to blow over the, the earth and over the waters and the waters begin to subside. Now the word here for wind, I want you to understand, is the same word that we find for spirit in Genesis 1, chapter 2. And what you're going to see, if you are familiar, if you are, are like me and have read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 like 400 times as you've tried to read through the Bible you know, in a year and you fail and then you go back and you start at Genesis 1 again and you read it and then you fail in Leviticus and you go back. I don't know if that's just me or if that's you, but... I know that's been me a million times. So I'm very familiar with Genesis 1. And if you're very familiar with Genesis 1, what you're going to find throughout this chapter is you're going to find a lot of things that make you think of Genesis 1. I mean, that sounds a little bit like Genesis 1. And there's a purpose to that. Because what Moses is saying as he's writing this book is he's saying God is recreating. He's doing again what he did then. And so we find here that just as the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2, here, it's not merely hovering, it's blowing over it. Notice, this is interesting, notice that the Scripture gives no credit to the sun or to the heat for getting rid of the water, does it? Only one thing does that. Spirit, the wind that's blowing. 
How often when God saves us and begins to uncover our lives and our hearts and begins this process of recreation in us, do we understand that that process begins with an act of the Holy Spirit? That it can only happen because the Holy Spirit begins to blow over your heart. The Bible gives that credit to the Spirit. Psalm 104:30 says this, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Friends, when God sends his spirit over you, he renews your life. He renews you. This entire chapter speaks like Genesis 1. First, the fountains of the deep are shut up and the heavens are closed. It's phrased in such a way to make it clear that this is not random. This is not a coincidence. This is not just something that happened, but it's something that God made happen actively. Just as the waters were separated from the heavens, the waters here start to abate. And what happens? The earth peaks forth, right? In the midst of all this, the ark comes to rest on the mountains. There's a word play here happening that I want you to catch. Remember way back when we first were introduced to Noah. We came to know then that the name Noah means rest. And Noah's dad, Lamech, the good Lamech, not the bad Lamech, if you remember, said that rest would come through his son Noah. And here what we see is the word for the ark resting on the mountains is the same word. It's literally saying the ark came and Noahed on the mountains. This process of bringing rest, God is bringing about. And then there's birds, right? And there's vegetation. There's living creatures. And the things that creep on the earth. And all these phrases that we see in Genesis chapter 1. And God commands Noah to bring every living thing out of the ark. And Noah obeys. And everything comes out. And God's recreation is restoration. And that by the power of his spirit. But it's not only a restoration, friends, of humanity. It's not only a restoration of the animals. It's a restoration of everything, the entire world. This restoration is only a foreshadowing of what's to come when God fully restores all things. And he gives us, and he will give us, not only a Noah kind of rest, but a Sabbath kind of rest. I want you to jump forward. To the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, Paul uses the idea of creation. He says this, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait 
eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, what I want you to understand is this. All of creation, everything, every created thing is subjected to the curse because of our sin. Not willingly, but because we have sinned. And so God has subjected it to the curse. And it waits eagerly to be released from this curse. From this bondage to corruption, totally. And finally, the corruption that plagued Noah's time, friends, plagues us today. You remember when God looked on the earth before he brought the flood. And it said, as he did in Genesis 1, when he saw and he said that this was good, this was very good, he looked in Noah's time and he saw and he said, this is not good. This is corrupt. And it's filled with violence. And the corruption that filled Noah's time, it fills our time as well. And we will be restored. In fact, our bodies will be redeemed. Do you understand? Do you understand what Paul is saying in Romans 8 as he talks about the work of Christ on our behalf, that the eternal state for the believer is not some disembodied spirit floating around on the clouds, playing a harp with little wings and a halo and whatever else that Hollywood makes up for us, right? That's not what the Bible says. It says that we'll be spirit and flesh. Just as our Savior Jesus was, rose from the dead, so too will we rise physical, embodied spirits. Not these bodies exactly that are broken down by sin, that are broken down by death, but redeemed and glorified bodies. And our place won't be on the clouds, some kind of I don't know, non-understandable kind of whatever. Our place is in a new heavens and a new earth, is what the Bible says. And just as God recreated the earth after the judgment of the flood, He will once and for all recreate the earth after Christ's judgment, and the world will not merely be given relief, will not merely be given Noah rest, but total rest from sin and death. See, that's what this story is foreshadowing. This is the inheritance of all God's children, that we have hope in this. But God hasn't left us empty-handed right now, friends. We're not merely waiting for that ticket to one day. It says that the first fruits, that there's a down payment of what's to come, and it's the Spirit of God living in us, Breathing over the waters, right? Recreating us right now. And the work of the Spirit in and through the life of the believer is a sign and a taste of eternity with Him. And it calls us adopted. It's how we know we're adopted as God's children. Now, adoption, friends, if you know... My family, adoption is something that's dear to us. When we adopted Silas, 
Our intent was not merely to adopt Silas from, uh, to, in order to save him from a bad situation. Okay? Now that needed to happen. It did. If you don't know, I've shared the story before. When Silas was born, his parents decided that he, they didn't want him. Because he had Down syndrome. And so a few days after, they left him in the hospital. And for three months, he stayed in the hospital as they tried to find someone in Hong Kong to adopt him. And then they were able to place him in a foster family. And for another two months, they tried to find someone in Hong Kong who would adopt him. And they received zero phone calls. Not a single bit of interest. And so we... And our own adoption process that, that God was bringing us into brought these two paths together in a way that only God can prompt, purpose to do and pull off, right? And we went and adopted him, but our adoption of him was not merely, oh, here's this child who needs to be saved from a bad situation. No, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Our intent was to Bring him into our family. Not to just save him from what he didn't have, but to give him something, to restore him back into family like he should have been in the first place, like was intended when he was born, right? I want you to understand that God's intent for his people is not merely to save them from the situation that they are in, but to actually bring them into his family. And when we brought Silas into our family, he became legally a waterman. His name changed. And friends, when God brings you into his family by the Holy Spirit, your name changes and who you are changes. You are his children. That is the primary source of your identity. It's in Jesus Christ. You're not merely saved. You're not merely given a ticket to heaven. Ticket to avoiding hell. But you are restored into his family. You are restored into relationship with your father. And I get it. At first, you think, well, okay. Like that's my new identity, but I don't look very much like Jesus. I don't act like very much like Jesus. And friends, I'll be honest, Silas like, doesn't look very much like me. I like to joke sometimes when someone says he does something that I do and go, oh, well, you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? And everyone, no one knows what to do with that because they're like, wait a second. And Silas finds that funny. <laughs> But the reality is, is as Silas, though he was legally part of our family, he did not act very much like a waterman. But over time, as he, was, as he continued to be part of our, my, our family, his, his behaviors changed. His mannerisms changed. His actions changed. He actually started to act like a waterman. I remember one silly example. I remember we brought him home and Ryder and Josie were so excited for him. 
uh, being there. And one of the things that often happens, like in our living room, is like random wrestling matches, right? Like that's just a waterman thing. I don't know if that's a thing in your family. It's a thing in our family. And so they bring him home. And so Ryder and Josie are like, hey, this is what we do with siblings. We jump on you, you know? Like that's what we do. We wrestle you. And Silas is sitting there and he's like, ah, you know, like, get, what are you doing, you know? Get off of me. But now, now he's the one. You won't even be paying attention and he'll, and he'll just run and just land on you, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even see that coming. You know, you've got the double knees going down or whatever. My point is this. By what Christ has done for you, he brings you into his family. But it doesn't stop there. Not only are you restored into a relationship with him, but the Holy Spirit actually begins to recreate you. Just as God recreated the earth in Noah's time, just as he'll recreate the earth once again into a new heavens and new earth, right now, the Holy Spirit, if you're in Christ, is, this is not an option, this is a fact, is changing you. And it's a fact, not an option, because it's not your work, but it's God's work that does it. And he promised he would do it, and God keeps his promises. Our hope in salvation is not just avoiding hell and biding our time until being restored. It's being received into God's family, being adopted as his children, and being transformed into his likeness. So God didn't save you to be saved. He saved you to be sanctified, friends. He intends that you would not act the way that you used to act, that you would not be the way that you used to be, but you you would be like his son. And God didn't save you merely to be saved. He saved you in order that you can serve. In order that, in a sense, I suppose, You can be a tool he uses to sanctify the world, to restore the earth. And what kind of action will work towards the restoring of the world? And how can we know if our actions are going to lead to that restoration? I think we see in these last few verses, in Noah's response, some answers to those questions. It says... Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and he offered the burnt offering on the altar. You see, our response should be the response of Noah, a response of grateful adoration. Two observations I'd like to make here. First, this is the only appropriate response to what God has done for us. Second, this is the only appropriate standard to judge our restorative actions. Stick with me here. The more that we realize that God's purposes are set before we're born, that it's not on account of our actions, but solely based on His grace alone that this happens, the more we realize the fullness of the catastrophic destruction from which God has saved us, the more grateful we are because of it. And that gratitude for what God already has done for us ought to be reflected in worship. And that worship ought to be a total and complete surrender to Him. You see, the phrase, offered burnt offerings, is loaded with meaning. 
Its motivation is joyful. Its extent is total. All of the animal that was offered in the burnt offering was burnt up to God. All of it. Every bit. Our response to God for what he's done ought to be out of gratitude. It ought to be fueled by joy, not cheap amusement or cheap happiness, but deep abiding joy for the reality of what God has already done for us. And it's total. It's a giving of all of ourselves back to him, all of who we are, all of what we did back to God. You see, the bulk of Christianity, I would believe, I think, thinks about their lives in three primary categories. On the one side, there are things that we know we ought not to do. We come to Christ, and we go, okay, I'm a Christian now. Okay, I know there are certain things that I ought not to do, that the Bible tells me I shouldn't do, that God doesn't want me to do. And these things are over here in this category. And then we know that there are certain things that the Bible tells us we ought to do, and these are kind of over here in this category. And you know, we, we ought to go to church. I ought to maybe give some money to the church or I ought to serve someone every once in a while. And there's some things I ought not to do. You know, I should, probably shouldn't kill anyone. Maybe I shouldn't commit adultery. I shouldn't steal stuff. And these are over here in this category. And this size of these maybe differs from person to person, depending on what you know and how much of the Bible you've read and what your influences are. But, but ultimately, what, what we think is that there's this area in the middle... That may con- maybe constitutes 50 to 80% of my life. And this is kind of the area that as long as I don't do these things and commit those to, to God, and as long as I do these things and commit that to God, that God basically gives me this middle area for me to do kind of whatever I want with. So this is kind of the no zone, and I give that to God. And this is the yes zone, and I give that to God. And all of this is like my zone of my life. And what I want you to understand is that idea is contrary to the very essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity is a complete and total surrender of our lives. Every bit. There is no section in the middle that's yours to do with what you want. Period. It is a total surrender and offering to God. Our our most basic and foundational, foundational purpose is to surrender ourselves without reservation to the service of God. And the answer, friends, is yes before he ever asks. If you're wondering, oh, well, I don't know, what will God ask me to do? I know I'm scared. Can I say yes to that? Friends, the answer is yes before the question is ever asked. That's Christianity. Because Christ died on the cross before you ever did a single thing. Because Christ purposed to save you before you ever even were born. Every other desire and pursuit and ambition or delight that we have is not merely secondary to this purpose, but it actually only exists if and is controlled by and directed by our sovereign king. If he says no, then it's a no. And if he says yes, he gets to decide when and how it's used. 
There is nothing you do that isn't to be done with Christ and his purposes as the first priority in, his, in your mind. Nothing. Anything less than that, friends, I want you to understand, is sub-Christian. It falls short. And so it's the only appropriate response that we can have. To give everything back to God. But we would say, we would also say that the only appropriate standard for judging whether something will be truly restorative is whether or not it's pleasing to God. Friends, I want you to think think about this. If God is all-knowing, and if his purpose is restoration, if his purpose is to restore the earth, that's what he wants to do. He wants to restore you in Christ. He wants to restore the earth. That is his ultimate purpose. And he's all-knowing. He knows everything, and he knows how to do that and the best way to do that, restoring things. And and he's good, right? And so restoring things is a good thing. And so he wants to do that. He wants to declare everything very good like he did at the beginning. Then he is the only one who can definitively say what actions will be restorative and what actions will not be restorative. You and I are not good judges of that. And so if we do what he calls us to do, what he asks us to do, we can know if he is pleased that it will always be restorative to the earth. That if he is pleased, it will always be restorative to us. Friends, I want you to understand that regardless of where God has you in life, he has given you this task to be a part of his restoring process. You see, the doctor and the police officer, the trash man and the manager, the teacher, or the stay-at-home mom, or the stay-at-home mom teacher nowadays, right? I don't care if you pick up sticks for a living. I don't care if we... If you dig ditches for a living, I used to say that until I actually had a friend who did dig ditches for a living. That's literally what his job was. Will we do whatever it is that God has set in front of you? Will we, off, will we do it as an offering of grateful adoration to the God who has saved us and who is restoring us? Do you seek to do these things? Oh, thank you, sir. Do you seek to do these things? Your job, your occupation, your role as a father or a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a neighbor? Do you seek to do these things in a manner that is pleasing to God? Does God look on the living sacrifice of your life And smell a pleasing aroma. Is our pursuit to do whatever we do in such a way that on that day he says to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, I want, there's one last point I want to share. While we might desire to respond this way, While we might respond this way sometimes, while we know that we ought to respond this way, we know also that we don't always do that, right? I know there's things that I've done, probably 
since the moment I woke up this morning that we're not pleasing to God, right? My kids could give you a laundry list of things that I've done that aren't pleasing to God. At times, our circumstances affect us, get us down. We, we may know in our head the truth of what God has done for us, but we don't feel very grateful for it. We may be led to worry. If I don't do this, if I'm not good enough at this, is God going to be disappointed? Is, is, he, is he disappointed in my lack of praise or my wrong attitude or the, the fact that my heart isn't, isn't grateful towards him? Will he reject me because I failed to respond appropriately to what he's asked me to do? Will, while he desires for total surrender, his approval, friends, and his adoption of us is not based on how well we perform Use my family as an example. I would never, I would never, even as an earthly father, think to make Silas's behavior the basis for whether or not he gets to continue to be in my family. The basis for whether or not he's in my family in the first place. We decided that before we ever met him. I want you, while I want him to obey and to respect and to honor us, I'm, and I'm disappointed in his actions when he doesn't, my love for him and the fact that he is our son is a finished action. That decision is made and final, full stop. I want you to know that if you are a son or daughter of God, that that decision is final. It's made full stop. And while God desires for you to honor and love him, there's nothing that you can do that will change that reality. While Noah's grateful adoration is an example for us, that we ought to respond uh, appropriately. Ultimately, friends, I want you to understand in this story, you and I are not Noah. What was foreshadowed in Noah and the flood judgment is made perfect in Jesus and in his final judgment. It says that the offering was a pleasing aroma to God and that it brought rest, right? Again, this word Noah is here. This word for pleasing, it actually comes from the word Noah. It's a restful aroma. But the aroma of the offering actually put to rest God's wrath. That's what it's saying. And there's one offering that was made, one complete and total offering that was made that puts to rest God's wrath. And that is Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus offered himself completely to pacify the wrath of God because of our sin. To restore us Back to him. But the interesting thing is while this verse says that the intentions of man's heart is evil from their youth, God's restoration, Christ's restoration, is actually meant to transform our hearts from that evil. Where earthly adoption falls short, God's doesn't. 
There are things that I can't restore in Silas that God can restore in us. Our love for him is great, but our power is limited. And God's isn't limited on either account. And so, with our eyes set on this eternal reality that one day God will restore all things perfectly. That reality leads us to work to make the world a God-honoring, God-pleasing aroma, just as Noah's sacrifice was pleasing to God. It leads us to work hard for God without eliminating our need for rest, right? To pursue right ends without taking too much credit for our successes and to, pursue, to persevere when it's hard without being too anxious of our failures. To simply obey in whatever role God gives us in his restoration project for the sake of the creator and for gratitude for the one who has saved us. And restores us. The world says, friends, that the only way to be able to live with yourself is to live for yourself. What could be more antithetical to the life of Christ that we implore others to imitate? Right? This kind of selfishness only leads to greater destruction. This kind of selfishness is the corruption and violence that we saw in Noah's day. It's not restoration. In fact, it's not even able to save the people who live by it from destroying themselves by addiction and anxiety and fear and suicide. Perhaps the root of the problem isn't what we are able to do for God, but what are we surrendering to God? Jesus has already brought us through the flood of God's wrath by the cross. And he promises to restore all things. So we are able to live for others on his account. And still live with ourselves. Because Christ has done this for us.